into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And on today's show, we are answering the best questions that you, the Duck fan, has submitted into our mailbag for this week. But before we dive into the show, I want to remind anyone out there that is not a VIP subscriber, Wednesday, May 27th. So if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out, Today is a free day. Everything on the site is free. There's no VIP information. Everything that we would normally have tagged, even previously, VIP is free for anyone that's not a member to read, try the site out. This is a one-day event, all of May 27th. I highly encourage you guys to go check out, go cruise around, go read some of the VIP stuff that you normally can't get if you are not a VIP subscriber. Uh, And that will give you a great window into what a VIP membership at DuckTerritory.com could be like. All right. We've got six questions, Eric, for this mailbag. I I think uh, looking over them, um, some recruiting, some, some football, some other discussions, as well, we got we got a good we got a good batch of questions. Yeah, keep these coming, everybody. I, I I must say that we've been getting more responses in the last couple of weeks than we had in a while. Certainly, I think since things slowed down here in March. Um, so keep these coming. It's been a really good collection of questions. To, to it's good having options to choose from. <laughs> Sometimes we had you know six or seven. Now we're getting a thing where I'm having to kind of pick between which ones I think are going to be for the best for the podcast. So keep them coming. We appreciate it. Keep using. The hashtag at some odds and audibles that makes it easier for us to find as well. Before um, we go into one though, I want to cut you off real quick. Before we get it. to number one, um, does it feel for you there's more optimism that football is going to be played? Because I feel like in the last week to two weeks, we've gone from I don't know if we're going to play football to we're playing football. We just don't know what the scenario is going to be like. I think we're on the same page. I think part of that is not even just football-related. It's the fact that other sport leagues seem to have optimism. Major League Baseball, the NBA, uh, I think the, the Bundesliga overseas soccer league it has started, I believe. Uh, we saw over the weekend, or I guess it was yesterday, uh, no, I think it was over the weekend, that golf do a you know a, a 18 holes with some celebrities, professional athletes that we all know. Um, just the fact that things are starting to happen and that there's, there's positive trajectory, it seems like that things will happen. Um, I think what the distinction for me is, is before it felt like we had a lot of problems and nobody was coming up with solutions. I think over the last couple of weeks, it feels like there are solutions, there's models that are being discussed. I think the conference call we had with some Pac-12 coaches, uh, I guess a little over a week ago now, that stood out to me of just like there's clearly a lot going on behind the scenes that we weren't aware of. And I think it felt like for a while, not that people were sitting on their hands, but it just felt like is anything constructive taking place? Like, are there any plans being made? And, and now I feel like there are clearly plans being communicated to media for different sporting leagues. There are clearly plans going on behind the scenes. It just feels like there's stuff going on. So I'm, I'm in agreement in terms of I probably do also share more optimism um, for a 2020 season taking place in some capacity. I still think we don't really know, obviously, what that will be. But I'm feeling better and better, I think, each day, each week, based upon what I'm reading and seeing, that you're right. I think we will have a football season this fall. All right, let's let's go into question one. All right, first question from at Big Love Kevin. What makes Oregon so attractive to recruits? People keep saying the culture, but what is it that makes up this culture? 
think that's a good question to start with, um, especially from a recruiting perspective, because something is obviously working. <laughs> Oregon is recruiting over the last three cycles better than ever before. So there is clearly something that is attractive for recruits. I think we can both speak to the fact that the the buy-in and the camaraderie amongst this team feels a lot different than it did under previous at least under Willie Taggart to a certain extent that was only one year and at least to the back end of the Mark Helfrich era. There just seems to be, everyone seems to be on the same page. It seems like everyone feels like a family. I think that's attractive when you come in as a recruit. Um, and I think tactically, and Matt, you can speak to this more than I can. Um, this staff is, I think, very aware of how to recruit, how to build relationships, how to, how to make sure that families are comfortable with sending their children to, to play for them. Um, and I think they're very direct uh, and, and upfront in communicating that. What other things in your mind, Matt, really stand out about this culture that Cristobal and the staff have kind of put in place? And uh, clearly, like I said, huge recruiting, rep, uh, you know, benefits because of what they've done. Yeah, I think we're seeing the power of a staff that is confident in their abilities to recruit and a staff that is made up of some really talented on-field coaches, but also some really talented recruiters, guys that just have that special ability to connect to any player from any part of the country and, you know, and and to connect even if they're, you know, well older than than the player that they're recruiting, to, to be able to connect to that person. I think Oregon has a good collection of that. And now we're seeing Oregon have the ability and the desire to pump money into their support systems and tap into their resources within the program of, of marketing. Like mm-hmm. everyone knows that the university's sports marketing department is one of the best in the country, uh, from a university academic level. Everyone knows that a lot of the people that work in the administrative side of the athletics department and the sports marketing department at Oregon, they are the best of their fields. They are some of the best at their fields. And we're seeing those two sides blend into each other and be used to its full power. I mean, I, I, I feel like Chip Kelly was a very good recruiter. I feel like um, Mark Helfrich had some guys on his staff that were very good recruiters, but I don't think either of those guys fully embraced the flash, the out there, you know, selling the marketing of their programs. Um, it, it was very closed off. And while I think crystal ball is, you know, from an information standpoint, some of the stuff that we would like to know, we don't, you know, he, he's closed off in some regards, but you know, he's also very open and he also finds ways to, whenever he talks to the media, he always finds some way to tie in some part of the program from a marketing standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint. And we're, you know, we're seeing that play out and we're now starting to see Oregon win. And when you have a coach that the players love, you're winning. And you have a formula to market your program at a high level, you are going to see success, and that's what we're seeing play out right now on the on the recruiting side for football. You said a lot of stuff. I agree with Matt. I think one thing that is really yes. important. Yes, you won. <laughs> one thing that's really important that that you said early on to acknowledge, I think, more is just like 
there's something to be said about being confident in yourself and, and your ability to, to recruit, I think, especially when you're selling. And there were comments made by previous staffs that didn't communicate confidence that Oregon was a place they could have that much success recruiting to. And that has not been Cristobal and his staff's perspective. And I think that part is an important part. And it's not a cultural thing as much as it's like a, a recruiting mindset thing. I just think they go out there and go into a living room thinking, we have a shot every time. You know, e- even if it's a kid in the southeast who everybody wants, we have a shot. Whereas I don't think that was really always the case, especially under Mark Kelfrich's staff. And I, I don't remember the signing class it was. But at one point, he did communicate kind of a level of like, it's kind of hard to recruit here. You know, they're, 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 it's a smaller town. It's not in a hotbed of talent necessarily. And I don't think I've ever felt any instance from Mario Cristobal that it's not that, that there's any room for excuses for why you can't recruit to Oregon. I think that's a part too, just a, a confidence that you go out into the trail and you can have success. You will have success. And clearly they've done a fantastic job so far of, of doing that. So well, I go back to, to Scott Frost when he landed at you at UCF. Yeah. He made comments too. There, there were comments that he told the local paper back in, in the Orlando area that, a big reason why he took that job was because he felt like he didn't really have to drive very far to go and recruit. And that's true if he wanted to. Like, he literally could just recruit the state of Florida and find enough players to turn that program to what it became under Scott Frost. And that was one that that won BCS games or, I, I guess, New Year's Six Bowl games. And, you know, what was it? Going undefeated and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he felt he felt that he even came out and said that at Oregon it's it was difficult to recruit to and and I I think the biggest thing with Crystal Ball and at Oregon is he has this no excuse mentality exactly that there is no reason why with the marketing and the the effort that you have, that coaching staff is expected to put into it the tradition at Oregon of winning games and yes that's crazy to talk about but Oregon is is been long has been around long enough at a winning level the last 20 years that they can now claim a tradition he, that he doesn't accept that there's no excuse that also oh, you mean we have to go and recruit a guy from Arizona and we have to go and, and beat out these schools or we have to go to Georgia or we have to go to Ohio or we have to go to Texas you you mean we have to go and compete there's going to be a good school at, at you know in that region that's going to want him too and he doesn't he doesn't allow excuses to be a factor for why Oregon can't recruit at a high level. And I think for a long period of time, that mentality was at Oregon of, oh, you're not going to be able to recruit on a national level on a consistent basis just because of all the effort that it's going to take to go into it. And look, there there have been coaches that have left Oregon, and they've said, you know either behind back channels or behind back channels that gets made public like Prentice Gill at Arizona State that didn't appreciate how hard you had to work at Oregon uh, under Mario Cristobal. And I I think that's true. I, I, I think that if you're going to be an assistant coach under Mario Cristobal, you need to be prepared to work 365 days a year. And there there is no downslope. There is no period where you can coast. It, it's all – gas all the time and that's very similar to every other head coach at the collegiate level that wins at a very high level you don't think coaches get burnt out coaching for under out uh 
working under Nick Saban at Alabama, but they win. Same thing for Dabo Sweeney. Same thing that happened at Urban Meyer at Ohio State. You know, the the best coaches are very difficult to work with because they have high, high expectations, and that's what Cristobal falls under. A lot of good stuff there. Um, let's jump on to the second question from at BBAT96, another recruiting question. Is the wealth of talent in the current secondary posing an obstacle to recruiting? Do prospective recruits see too many cooks in the kitchen? Or could this be an effect of Coach Dante leaving to USC? I want to just start by acknowledging that it's not like Oregon's recruiting class is not going well. Uh, this would be maybe a question that would make sense in a general term like three weeks ago before they landed all these commitments. And we should say we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. You might be listening to this later in the week, and Oregon might have landed more commitments than when we're recording this because there's some optimism about other players. But if this is focused centrally on recruiting in the secondary, which is how I'm going to decide to read it, um, Oregon does not have any verbal commitments from defensive backs in 2021. They had one. His name was Anthony Beavers. He transferred to you, or not transferred, he decommitted and then committed to USC where, where Dante Williams is at. So in that instance, I guess you can say there, there is an impact of Dante Williams leaving the USC. If Dante Williams was still at Oregon, Anthony Beavers would likely still be committed to Oregon. Or there's a good chance of that. At the same time, uh, I'm not somebody who's concerned at all about the current trajectory of recruiting for the 2021 class. And I'm not overly concerned about the defensive back recruiting for the 2021 class either, in part because there are a ton of really talented players on the roster already. I don't think defensive back is a massive, massive get, but also because you look at who they're after and they're still in on some really good players. They just haven't made decisions yet. It's not like they're swinging and missing at all of these guys every single day. I know Denzel Burke, a player we spoke about um, last week's podcast is committed to Ohio State. Maybe that's kind of where this question came from. But I think generally, and Matt, you can communicate if you disagree, I don't think defensive back recruiting is going poorly right now. They just don't have any commitments to show for it. Right. Um, I 100% agree. I mean, you look at you look at some of their top targets, and let's just go down the list here at cornerbacks. Sierra Wright is a top 100 group, almost a top 70 guy. Oregon's one or two for Sierra Wright right now. Um, Nathaniel Wiggins is a top 150 player in the country, a top 10 cornerback in the country. He is extremely high on Oregon. It's Oregon or USC right now. Jalen Davies, uh, this is a prospect that is another top 150 recruit, the 12th best cornerback in the country. He actually put Oregon in his top four when he originally did not have them in his like top eight. And so Oregon's made up ground there and with Jalen Davies is, key thing for, for, for Oregon there is he plays at Matter Day High School. That's mm-hmm. a school that the last two or three seasons Oregon has really created a deep pipeline into because it's historically been a USC feeder school. And it, it's every single season one of the best high school teams in the country, not just California. So getting in there is really good. Jameer Johnson, another top 250 player in the country, you know, top 20 player at the quarterback position. He's extremely high on Oregon. I mean, Oregon has seen Philip Riley. They've seen Stephen Ortiz. Uh, they've seen Zachary Spears. Um, they've seen Caleb Higgins commit to other Pac-12 schools um, or Notre Dame or Minnesota. But these are cornerbacks that are significantly lower down the pecking order than some of the names I just mentioned. There really hasn't been a top target at the cornerback position that Oregon was recruiting that has committed to a school not named Oregon yet. And from a safety perspective, you could argue, excuse me, you could argue that 
some of their top targets there are also in play. JD Coffey, uh, he's a top 100 or top 200 prospect. He's high on Oregon. Um, Oregon is making a very strong case for, uh, Marion Gordon to decommit from USC to Oregon. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of guys out there that are still available that I wouldn't necessarily come out and say that defensive back recruiting is struggling right now. Um, I, I do think that Oregon is also in a unique position where they can offer playing time and yet at the same time feel very confident of who they have waiting in the wings once Diamande Lenore and Thomas Graham both graduate. I, I, Eric, I, I think you would agree with this, that we look at Michael Wright as a guy that's going to be basically a one-year starter at Oregon because after his junior year, he'll probably go pro. Um, he's that good. And then you've got Dante Manning, who's a five-star. You've got a couple other guys that have redshirted or, or played a little bit last season as true freshmen. And so you, you kind of feel confident in the group that you have behind them. But at the same time, you can still go out to a recruit and say, look, we still think you are as good as our backups and you will have a chance to come in and play right away. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a reason Oregon can't go out and sign some really highly regarded defensive backs. You're right in terms of Oregon loses a lot in the secondary after 2020, um, but they and they have a lot coming back in 2021. But I, I do think they're if you're a recruit looking at what Oregon's depth chart is for 2021 and beyond, I don't think you look at that and go like, oh, there's no room for me to play. And even if you are looking at it from that perspective, you probably don't want to go to Oregon anyway because I think competition is such a big part. But yeah, I think you're right. I, I think there is room to land some big guys, and I don't think there is reason for pessimism that they're going to do that either based upon what we've seen previously from this recruiting staff. Third question from John V. Adams. Any updates on Logan Sagapalu being available for 2020? I've read different things about his availability for next year. For those listening that maybe aren't familiar, um, Logan Sagapalu was a 2019 recruit. Uh, he's an offensive center from the Utah area, ninth-rated center in that class, a three-star recruit. Went on a Mormon mission. Um, I think maybe the question here regard is because he, I think, was in Hawaii. Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but came back due to COVID, and I think maybe people are, are trying to figure out, is he going to play right away? We're not expecting, unless Matt has heard something totally different, you want to break it, that he will be available for 2020. Um, the expectation is he'd be a 2021 guy, and I also think you have to think about it, and we talked, we had this discussion last week about the scholarship numbers. Oregon is already, as we established, a little bit above that number. And if you toss in Logan Sagapalu, I think that, I don't know how you fit that in. I don't know. Oregon needs to maybe lose a player or two rather than add one. Yeah, I don't, I don't anticipate Logan right now to be part of the 2020 team. I believe what's going to happen is he will train and, um, prepare himself to come to Oregon and will arrive or will enroll, I should say, in December of 2020 and join the team following the 2020 football season ahead of the 2021 spring football. So he will get a spring football before his true freshman season, which would be 2021. Um, to my knowledge, he's going to count towards that 2021 recruiting class. Okay, let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Austin Audible's podcast.
When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. We're doing the mailbag. Three questions in, three more to go. Fourth question from at GoDucks562. What player that either redshirted or played very little last year will end up with the most productive Oregon career? Surprisingly, there's actually quite a few options here. And I say that because you're looking at a team that has a lot of depth returning at a lot of spots, but... Um, you aren't even limited to freshmen, I think, with this question. Redshirted or played very little. And I think, actually, I, my best pick would probably be Stephen Jones, um, who redshirted this last season, expected to play right tackle, um, will have a couple of years to be a starter there, depending on when he wants to go pro, if that is something he chooses to do early on. We're probably putting the cart before the horse here because we're talking about somebody who's played, I think, four career games, and that took place in 2018 um, as a true freshman. Jones is somebody that has incredible size, strength, and athleticism for the position. I think somebody who will be a, obviously not the same caliber of player as a Penny Sewell left tackle. It's a huge thing to ask, but I think Jones has the ability to be a all-conference player during his career. I don't expect that necessarily in 2020 as his first year starting, but down the line he has that upside, I think. And I think he has the upside to be a... a Day one, day two kind of draft pick possibly as well. I know that's, again, a lofty praise. But when the question was asked, that was the first name I thought of. Matt, was there somebody else you thought of, or, or was that one that you also kind of landed on? Yeah, I, I think um, Stephen Jones is certainly one that I would have, have brought up. Um, I go back, though, to I, I think if, if, offensive, if I was going to look at someone offensively, I would say Stephen Jones. Maybe Alex Forsyth. Mm-hmm. Um Based off of all the previous seniors, what they said of him, what Crystal Ball has has talked about, what Alex Mirabal has talked about when they bring him up. Um, on the defensive end, though, like I, I, I've answered this question I think a couple times, and yeah, we have. I I always cheat, and so I'm not going to I'm not going to deviate from that, and I'm going to give you three names that I think one of them will will end up being an All Pac-12 caliber guy that could potentially find his way into the NFL, and those are all cornerbacks. Jamal Hill, DJ James, and Triquez Bridges. Um, DJ James, Jamal Hill played as as true freshman in 2019. Uh, Triquez Bridges played in four and then redshirted. But so I, I, you know, Bridges will be a redshirt freshman while James and Hill are, are sophomores. They've gotten lost in the shuffle of De'Amade Lenore, Thomas Graham, uh, Michael Wright, Verone McKinley, and now Dante Manning being thrown into the mix as well at cornerback. One of those guys is going to turn into a dude. And by dude, I mean uh, someone that everyone will in, in the Pac-12 will know by name, will be an all-conference caliber player, and will have NFL teams just chomping at the bit. I like those picks. I've been high on all three of those players. You know, I think Hill in particular was somebody I was really high on during the fall. Um, 
he suffered an injury. I don't know if that slowed him down much, but we didn't quite produce at the same level I thought as a true freshman. But I'm with you in terms of being very high on his upside. Uh, James, I thought, played pretty darn well. I mean, you think back to that Washington game where he was forced into action and got beat for a touchdown, but I think he was pretty com- you know, pretty competent out there against Washington in some big moments while Lenore was dealing with an injury. And, and Bridges, to me, was somebody that, going into last season, was my ultimate sleeper guy. I thought he was going to have a chance to be really productive as a freshman. He's moved from safety to corner. He's super long, super athletic. With there being some question about the cornerback position in 2021, 2022, obviously losing some, some seniors. Those are guys that I agree I, I like. I think if I'm picking one, Hill would probably be the one I have the highest confidence level on, in part because he has the potential to play some nickel, which is where he's working now. Um, and there's that's a spot that opens up after Javon Hall and um, more than likely goes pro this season. So his, I think, opportunity to play right away is maybe more direct. Fifth question from at Johnny the K. Hypothetical co- question, which is important to clarify. If... <laughs> If only half of the 54,000 seats in Austin were available for the Ohio State game because of health concerns, what would you use as the basis for selecting who could buy tickets? Um, I think this is easy. Very hypothetical. Matt, if it's easy, go ahead and answer it for me because I'm still getting lost in all these different uh, parts of the scenario that are completely hypothetical. (laughs) Right. Okay, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I get if. I have a hard time thinking Oregon's going to have more than 30,000, 35,000 season ticket holders for the 2020 football season. Um, and if, if they do, then you just run a lottery among the 30,000 fans that, that, that order season tickets. Um, real, real quick, you know, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think there's a, a, an easier way than that. No, I'm with you. Um, I'm in complete agreement. Season ticket holders for sure, you know, and I think if there is a, I mean, we're being, it's hypothetical to the point even that half of the seats are available for the Ohio State game when I think that's really optimistic myself. But, like, if it is a thing where maybe let's just say, again, it's a hypothetical question for hypothetical purposes. Let's say for the whole season, only every home game, only half of the fans are able to go to. Maybe you find some way to divvy up different packages for the fan base because clearly in that case, I think you're right. There would be certain people that are season ticket holders that have expectations they can be at every home game that would be left out if we're talking about a 27,000 uh, seat Autzen Stadium. I think the other question is like, do you give any to Ohio State or visitors, <laughs> or is it all 27,000 to the season ticket holders? And that could be a way to have a very, a very one-sided home field advantage, although, of course, you're talking about half the fans in attendance to begin with. I mean, Oregon, from a, from a record standpoint, um, Oregon had 43,000 season ticket holders in 2011. And so, I mean, that number right now, I can tell you, it's less. Is, is way less. Um, it's more around the 30,000 mark. And that's kind of why I came up with that um, that number, and so I, I, I think you do a lottery and you just, you know, you, you figure out maybe a certain tier automatically gets every game, and you you price it so that those fans that are paying at a high premium price are guaranteed every game, and then every other season ticket holder enters the lottery, and and some get three home games, some get four, maybe some get five. 
Yeah, and uh, this is maybe oversimplifying it, and I think you're right, though, unfortunately. Uh, my, my real answer is probably whoever is willing to pay for the tickets, like whoever's willing to pay the most for the right. tickets, because, you know, I think ultimately maybe that's, I mean, I think that seems somewhat unfair from a financial perspective, but ultimately the way this season is going to play out, there will be financial implications, and you probably are going to have to kind of chase the dollars a certain extent, and if, if you can price tickets in a certain manner that, that excludes others, that's an unfortunate reality, but... Financially, that might be the best choice, or would be the best choice without question. Um, complicated question, hypothetical question, interesting question, but um, one that I think has pretty specific answers. Um, final question from at Paradise nine one nine four zero zero. Due to abbreviated spring practice and lockdown, are there specific Duck players, veterans, or twenty twenty class you may have you may have been you feel may have been set back the most toward? being prepared to contribute this season. Sorry, Paradise, that I butchered part of that question. That was my fault, not yours. Um, you worded that properly. Uh, I think the short answer for this one is everyone was definitely impacted uh, by this, and you can look through almost every position group and go like, boy, it would have been really great to have had them get more experience. You know, I mean, and, and so there's no question on that. I think everybody is impacted negatively by missing out on 11 spring practices and, and everything that goes with that. I think more specifically, if I'm going to pick one position group, I think it's the quarterbacks. Um, you're trying to put in a totally new offense with a totally new offensive coordinator. 11 practices for Tyler Shuck and Kale Millen and Jay Butterfield and maybe Anthony Brown gets here at some point for spring. I don't know. But those opportunities would have been extremely significant, especially for a guy like Tyler Shuck, who is being at least entered and exited spring as the, the top quarterback pretty clearly. If he would have had more time, I think, to work on not just the offense, but building relationships with some of the receivers maybe he didn't get to work with very often, with some of the tight ends he didn't get to work with very often, with, with building relationships with the offensive line. I mean, there's so many things that go into this. But I think because quarterback is the position on the roster that I think you probably feel the most uncertainty around just because you're replacing a, a three or four year starter in Justin Herbert and Tyler Shuck has only attempted, I think 15 passes in his career. That's the position that has the most attention on it. And I think missing out on 11 practices, that's the position, unfortunately, that probably gets hit the most. Yeah. I, I think the receiver spot is, is going to get hit hard. Um, just like you said, there's no spring practices and the, the chance to develop the reputation and the rhythm and the reps and, and the continuity and all that's gone. And so it's, you know, maybe though, we do know this, maybe, um, Tyler Shuck and Johnny Johnson are both home in Arizona. Both are from the same town. Yep. We've seen them do some stuff. So maybe that combination right there will see very little drop off if Tyler Shuck wins the job. I, that's a good point to bring up too, and it, it, we, we can't ignore the fact that some of these players are at least able to work out, and, and in that case, work out together. I think a couple. I mean, there's a ton of players that you can include in here. The offensive line, you're replacing four starters. Penny Sewell was, we should mention, kind of like dinged up early. It would have been an opportunity for a variety of players to get some reps um, with the first team players that hadn't previously had a lot of experience in that regard. Um, I think. You have a position like at left guard where you have a Sam Putasi who's a senior who maybe it would have been great for him to have a whole spring where he could have proven he could be that first-team guy. Now he enters the fall without kind of some of that confidence. So him being able to be in the spring game after working really hard, after not playing very much, but him entering the spring game as the number one left guard, I think those kind of things would have been super beneficial 
for players that are potentially entering big position, you know, bigger roles in 2020 than they had in the past and, and maybe need some of that confidence. And I think you could say the same thing about the tight end position where you have a Hunter Cantmore. Maybe that spring would have been great for him building his confidence or maybe it would have been a great spring for a variety of other guys. It came McCormick to getting fully healthy and, and seeing he can do it for, you know, a month of practice for a Patrick Herbert who didn't really have a lot of opportunity last year to really take advantage of it for a DJ Johnson who made a position change. So yeah, I mean, there's, I'm going through this and realizing I think I could say almost everyone on the roster was impacted by this, but I think in particular the positions where there were there were starting jobs that are available where players could have used that time to win those jobs or battle for those jobs and at least gain confidence that they, they can be those players in those positions, miss out on that. But to me, I think quarterback continues to be the one where, man, Tyler Shuck could really have used 11 more practices just to try to get everything sorted out and, and, and learn the offense, learn his role as the, as the starting quarterback, because that is a much different role than being a backup. Should we discuss this breaking news that happened while we're recording the show? Uh, go ahead, Matt. I don't know <laughs> if I've seen this breaking news, so let's discuss it because I assume you bring it up means it's a uh, discuss dis- worthy news to discuss. Yeah. So while we were recording this podcast, we we typically record the mailbag on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, so pulling back the curtains here a little bit, and we're doing this this show and the Pac-12 during this release during this recording released a statement saying the Pac-12 will allow for voluntary in-person athletic workouts beginning June 15th and as long as the states and the health regulations in those campuses allow are you know are allowing you know gyms to be open, essentially. Basically, June 15th, Oregon's athletes can go into the football facility, the basketball athletes can go into Matthew Arena, the track athletes can go to Hayward Field, um, the softball players can go to the Jane, the baseball players can go to PK Park, and all of those athletes can go to the Marcus Mariota Center, all those athletes can go to um, the training table to get their meals uh, beginning June 15th, meaning... We're going to start seeing athletes in the next couple of days get told, hey, you need to come back to campus. We're going to, you know, we're, we're booking you your flight home or however they get here. I don't know. Um, it's time to return to campus because things are opening up. Now, um, the Pac-12 did email out, a, you know, a full press release on this. I got it. And there is some information on, you know, infographic of returning to campus and, and whatnot. Um there, if you're flying, you're, you are to consider isolation for seven days prior to return to athletic facilities. Um, limit contact and keep lists and have no known COVID-19 contact for night, for 14 days prior to your arrival to campus. If you drive to campus, uh, you are not allowed, you're allowed to have, you know, no additional isolation necessary. You can just be fine. It's the planes that bring the issue. High-risk staff and students um, should consider delay until stage three of national reopening criteria or go through an informed decision-making process with the medical staff before return to athletic facility. That's meaning if, if Dan Altman has said this on the record, that he is of the age that uh, COVID-19 is m- more dangerous uh, for, and he would be someone that would have to make that decision of, I understand that I am, you know, at at risk more than some of my peers because of my age. 
Now, return to athletic facilities. You must be symptom and fever free. You will need to be pre, uh, will need pre participation evaluation, laboratory testing, health and education for athletes, staff, and setting of culture expectations, including hygiene, setup activity, contact tracing systems at the facilities. Uh, face coverings must be worn at all times when you're inside the athletic facilities. Hmm. Um, facility specific considerations. Facility access, negative symptom and temperature check prior to admittance. Consider strategies to keep distance. Increase the cleaning of those facilities for weight rooms, workout in small groups, schedule to minimize crowding, maintain physical distance, clean equipment between each use. Outdoor activities may need to increase space if running or sprinting. Locker rooms, they are supposed to consider having athletes come prepared to work out and shower at home during the early stages of this. Consider how distance will be maintained. Athletic training room. Limit number of students in the training room. Consider appointments, no walk-in. So if, if you have a twisted ankle, you set an appointment for coming in and getting treatment on that. Or if you're rehabbing a torn ACL, for instance. Uh, food distribution, dining. Normally, athletes can go into the HTC building and grab a meal at any time and eat it there. They're suggesting now that only prepackaged food be available in the facility, no eating in the facility, and every meal provided is to go. And then last but not least, there's two more areas here. Return to exercise, daily symptom and temperature tests continue, weight room and conditioning, small group activity, create small functional units and keep your distance, wear cough face coverings at all times. Team activities can be done outside the, the functional group should be online. If done properly, these contacts would be considered low risk. Um, response to infection, presumed infection. This is the big one here. What happens if someone gets infected while they're playing? Quarantine individual with infection, suspected infection. If in the facility, provide a mask, isolate, and close the door. Monitor for symptoms development and manage it as indicated. Return to activity is dependent on symptom course and severity meaning the symptom, the athlete is symptom-free for 72 hours, and this is key, at least 10 days since onset of symptoms. So if an athlete yeah. tests you know, positive for infection, they have to be 10 days removed from competition, and over the, the last three days, they, ha- they can't have any kind of symptoms to be able to come back. Um, symptom, alternatively, symptom-free and two negative t- uh, PCR tests 24 hours apart from each of those tests. Consider follow-up testing as recommended. Sym- symptomatic athletes should not exercise, resume exercise, until cleared by the team physician. Um, low-risk contact of a, of, a, of a positive case would be a functional social group with appropriate social distancing. Uh, monitor closely for symptoms. Individuals with high-risk conditions may ch- choose a more conservative approach and opt to isolate um, and then it, it goes on for high risk, but basically the, the, the basics of this is athletes are now allowed to come back, and if they test positive or if they have some kind of symptom of it, they have to be quarantined away from everybody else for 10 days. We started the show, you asked me about my confidence level of a football season happening. Uh, uh, this sort of news makes me feel even better. And, and it, what also makes me feel good is you listen to it and Matt just read through the whole thing. It's very thought out. There's very clear guidelines. They're very, they've clearly made decisions 
with science in mind, which I think is important throughout this. Um, they've clearly thought a lot about it. I mean, there was a ton of very specific regulations that you have to have, even entering and doing a, a weight training, even going to the training staff. Um, if you test positive, there is very clearly clear parameters for what you're supposed to do, or if you feel symptoms or you're in contact with somebody. The fact that there are regulations in place, so if, if you t- took an airplane to Eugene, you have to deal with things differently than if you drove. I, I just think the totality of the whole message is very clear. Of, we have very specific things we want to be that have to be done, and they have to be done this way. If you don't, there's like a no tolerance policy, and this is what we're doing. So I, I'm super encouraged by the fact that mid June we're going to have athletes back on campus, getting ready for a football season. That gives everybody a. It's going to be, I think, really beneficial just to have everybody in the same place together and being able to see each other face to face. I'm sure from a, just a social level, it's been weird having all their meetings via Zoom. Being able to actually see people face to face is great, and it provides some sort of normalcy of like, hey, football is like kind of like this is sort of similar. There's a bunch of, again, there's a bunch of guidelines and regulations in place, but at least it feels like some semblance of reality is returning. So I think it's significant news. I'm excited. Um, to kind of as the weeks as we get closer to the 15th to kind of see how everything's coming together I'm excited when things do come together to hear about how all of this is coming together throughout the country because I know we've seen other conferences also pass similar guidelines so I very positive very exciting I think we'll now have a better idea over the course of the next month or so I think by the time you get to like a mid-June July and you have everybody on campus and they're all preparing if there aren't any cases or anything like that I think that's going to be very encouraging so uh, Matt, do you have anything else that really jumps out when you're reading through this that you thought positively or negatively about? I mean, it, it just reaffirms what we talked about, like you said at the beginning, that the optimism now has shifted towards will football be played, but now it's now morphed into how is football going to be played? Because we've, we've figured out that it's going to, it's going to happen. And now all that, that's left to figure out is how do we get from point A to point B, and how do we do it safely, and when does this happen? Um, football, I, I I have very doubt, I have very little doubt in my mind right now that some form of a college football season will be played for the 2020 season. That's going to do it for us on the Ots and Audible's podcast. For Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prem. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.